for each topic when we're done. Uh, so when we talk about the Ethics Act, we're talking about the Public Official and Employee Ethics Act. Who does that apply to? Public officials. That's elected and appointed officials. That's all you elected officials out here, as well as the appointed officials like your solicitor, your zoning officer, and other appointed officials under your code. It also relates to the employees. So therefore, if you're a manager sitting in this room, it applies to you as, a, as well. So what's the big takeaway at the end of the day with respect to the Ethics Act? It is, it is your obligation and your obligation alone to comply with the Act. It's not the board president or chair to remind you to comply with the Act. It is not the manager to remind you to enforce the Act. And it's not your solicitor to be the watchdog at the end of the day. It's yours and yours alone. When the Ethics Commission comes knocking at the door and they do an investigation, they're not going to levy a penalty against the solicitor or the manager. They're going to levy the penalty against you. So as we go through some scenarios, I'm going to get some examples and make sure you understand how important it is for you to comply with the Act. And I'm going to break it down into basically three categories. And it's the inappropriate participation at a meeting when you have a conflict of interest. It's going to be uh, improper contracting with your municipality. And the final one relates to financial statements, either completing them or completing them improperly. So we start with the Act. And, and what did the Commonwealth come up with when it really said, what, what's the purpose behind the Act? And they basically said, uh, as a public officials, we are surrounded with a public trust. And as a result, we cannot use our appointed or elected capacity for financial gain, and that would be considered a violation of that public trust. And within the act, they talk about what is the definition of a conflict of interest. And that's the use by a public official or public employee of the authority of his office or employment or any confidential information received through his holding public office or employment for the private pecuniary benefit of himself, a member of his immediate family, or a business with which he is a member or his immediate family, family member is associated. So what's the breadth of that statement? When we talk about what is that immediate family, it's not only you, but it's your parent, your spouse, your child, your brother or sister. So you can't be making decisions that provide a pecuniary benefit to any of those individuals. You can't be utilizing the inside information you have as an elected official to benefit them. Now, there's a, a few exceptions to that later in that definition, that if that benefit is of a de minimis economic impact, that really is irrelevant. Well, the, the Commonwealth did a great job of defining what that impact is. It's an economic consequence which has insignificant effect. I have no idea what that means. Um, but I guess one example would be if you're an elected official and you're taking a vote to eliminate a light tax, which is the taxes which is imposed upon certain areas of your municipality to provide lighting. 
and that individual tax that's being imposed on those property owners is $10 on an annual basis, and you're one of those property owners. I think it would, could be argued that's an insignificant economic impact to you, and you could probably vote on that without be, being considered a conflict of interest. So then it also says, which affects, and then there's another exception, which affects the same degree or a class consisting of the general public or a subclass consisting of uh, certain people. Oftentimes we get asked by school board members, my daughter is a member of the Association of Teachers how can I vote on the collective bargaining agreement that's going to increase her salary or increase her benefits? And the answer is, well, you can. Because the class of individuals that you're voting upon are all the association members, and they're impacted equally. So therefore, you can vote in that, in that capacity. Um, so when we talk about conflicts of interest, and the first thing I identified is Really, when you get in trouble is when you're participating, typically in a public meeting, and there's an issue that comes up, and it is a conflict of interest that's associated with you. It's a business that you're involved with, or you know, a lot of times we have an example where uh, there's an individual sitting as an elected official, and we're talking about employing uh, the firm that they are engaged with, or be you know they're a professional engineer and they're doing engineering work with that municipality. It is their obligation to recuse themselves from the participation in that matter. Now, a lot of times people say, well, I'll participate in the discussion, and when it's time to vote, I'll recuse myself. When you have a conflict of interest, it's incumbent upon you to remove yourself from any de deliberation and any influence on that issue. You can't talk to your fellow elected officials. You can't sit at the meeting and say, okay, I'm gonna comment on this. Best practice is actually, when that issue comes up, get up and walk in the audience and sit down. And don't even participate. And also, another element of that recusal is you're gonna have to sign a form typically, which is a disclosure form that your municipality should have that says, I recuse myself from this issue or this vote, and disclosing what the conflict of interest was. Every one of your ministers should have that form, and every time you declare that I have a conflict of interest or I'm recusing myself from this vote, you need to or should fill that out. The second issue that typically comes out is, well, I have a business, and you know I've got this internet business, and the, and the township wants to contract with someone to do internet work. I'll just help them out, and I'll and I'll do the work for a thousand dollars. And typically, it's the unfortunate part is. Typically when they, when they trip over themselves, they're trying to be a good guy. They're trying to be a nice guy. They're trying to provide a service probably at a fee less than what someone else would charge. But the law says, no, you can't contract with your independent municipality if the contract is more than $500. Uh, and therefore, you can't do it unless the award of that contract is part of a open and public process. Open, it was advertising in advance allowing anyone to submit a bid, as well as the award at the time was disclosed with everyone who bid and what the bids were. And furthermore, if your business gets awarded that contract, you cannot participate in the oversight of that contract. You need to remove yourself from the interaction between your business and the municipality. And then the final uh, situation is uh, financial statements. 
as elected officials, you probably all filled out a financial statement in order to run for office. On an annual basis, and, and in the packet, there's a sort of the, the front form of what that looks like. Uh, you're going to have to fill out an annual financial statement. And typically, it's the manager or the secretary that passes it up and says, make sure by May 1st you get this back. Uh, I would ask that read the instructions carefully. The best practice is full disclosure. If you're not sure, ask someone that can provide you guidance so that you don't make a misstatement and not disclose something. It's better to be more transparent than less transparent. Get it in by May 1st uh, and do it on an annual basis. So what happens is, oh, I missed May 1st. My gosh, what am I going to do? Um, get it filled in and send in as soon as possible. And whatever you do, don't date it on an incorrect date. If you're, if you're submitting on June 1st, submit it on June 1st. Uh, we had a situation where we had an elected official who, who um, didn't get it on time, it was months later, and he filled out the form and sent it in and he dated it May 1st. Well, unfortunately, he used a form that was dated September of that year. So the Ethics Commission was able to determine that you improperly and fraudulently identified the date that you submitted. So what's the concern? And let's say, and what happens, you didn't file a financial statement, you didn't do it properly. Typically what happens, and where elected officials get drawn into an ethics commission inspection, is at some point in time, you're gonna piss off someone that's in your community. And they think the way they're gonna get back at their elected officials, they're gonna complain to the ethics commission and have the ethics commission come down and do an investigation. And typically, if there's a complaint, the ethics commission is going to come down, and the first thing you're going to ask the, the secretary is, please provide me the file of all the forms from this past year or past two or three years. And they're going to go through them, and they're going to identify everyone that should have filed a form to see if they filed it, and they're, they're going to look at, was it done properly? The good thing is the ethics commission has taken somewhat of a relaxed approach with financial statements. They'll go down to identify who hasn't done it or how, how was it done improperly, and they'll typically send a letter out to all the elected and appointed officials that said, we recently did an inspection, and we noted the following. You didn't include blank information, or you did file it for 2017. You have 30 days to actually correct that violation. And they'll send it out, and in 30 days, they'll be back to reinspect to see if you've complied with that request. Uh, so, what are the violations under the ethics law? If, you, if you've engaged in a conflict of interest, which would be that voting thing that we talked about in the beginning, uh, if you were seeking improper influence, or you accepted improper influence, the act provides that that is a felony. This is no joke, it's a felony. And you can have a, up to a fine of $10,000 and it has jail time of up to five years. And they're not coming after the solicitor, they're coming after you. With respect to the other violations, the financial statement stuff and some other minor stuff, that's a misdemeanor, $1,000 fine, and up to one year in jail. Once again, a criminal offense. Now, I don't, I don't know if there's a get out of jail free card here or not, 
But the act also does include the fact that at the end of the day, if you asked for advice and an opinion from your solicitor on a specific issue, and you received that opinion, and that opinion was filed with the township, that does protect you from any liability, uh, that any felony or misdemeanor charge. Now it does say that opinion could not have been provided under coercion. So that's a, I think that's a solicitor's protection that it forces to provide us an opinion that was inappropriate. Uh, so that, that's sort of the framework. It, the, the, the act also does provide treble damages. So let's go back to that contract that said you were, for some reason you received a benefit of $10,000 they can actually have a civil penalty uh, three times what the benefit that you receive from, uh, from your inappropriate behavior, as well as they have the latitude to provide civil penalties, which is really not provided specifically what that is in the end. So um, once again, uh, that's the, the framework of the Ethics Act, somewhat pretty scary, and you need to be vigilant at all times. And I would say if, if you're going down a road where you're like, man, I don't know if I should vote on that, I think whatever, Ask your solicitor. You know, you need to say something before you get yourself in trouble. Let's move on to uh, public finance. Um, there's sort of two things when I talk about public finance. Uh, there is a state overlay and a federal overlay. And what's the, the big takeaway here? It is you can't do anything you want. This isn't like your business where you go down to the local bank and sign up for a line of credit, and they give you a line of credit, and you're all, all fronting. Or it's not like your home where you get a home mortgage and you apply for a home mortgage, and in 45 days you got your home mortgage, and all of a sudden you have a bunch of money that you can work with. The Pennsylvania overlay is the Local Government Unit Debt Act. Local Government Unit Debt Act regulates how public bodies in Pennsylvania can borrow money. And the Local Government Unit Debt Act is regulated by DCED. They are the check and balance in Pennsylvania as to who can borrow money and how much they can borrow. And therefore, they have debt limits that any municipality can borrow money. For instance, and that's based on your last three years of revenue. It makes sense. The city of Philadelphia should be able to legally borrow a heck of a lot more money than Jacobsboro. You know, and it all gets down to the public trust. You are the public stewards of your taxpayers' money. And you can't do risky things. So they say you want to borrow so much money that's able to be paid back with your revenue. So that's the local government unit debt act. They have a framework by which you have to approve it. That's typically by ordinance or resolution if you're an authority. Um, and you have to then do an application to DCED, go re review the application to make sure it complies with the act. It provides all of the borrowing base information that they say that yes, you're within your limit. Once they approve it, then you can actually issue the debt. So what do they provide purposes for the issuance of debt? Long-term debt, you can only borrow debt for capital projects. A lot of times municipalities say, you know, we're gonna have shortfalls over the next few years. I would like to borrow money to pay operating expenses over the next few years. No, no, you can't do it. That's illegally impermissible. The Commonwealth says you need to raise taxes instead. The other one is you can do a short-term borrowing called a tax anticipation note that has to be paid off within the calendar year in which you borrow it. 
and that the purpose of that is it's a recognition that municipalities typically don't get their money or their tax money the large part until April and therefore they may need short-term financing between January and April to see you see it through some tough months and therefore you have to borrow that you can borrow that money with the anticipation tax money comes in that year and you pay it off before December 31st of the end of the year um, then there's a federal overlay under the uh, under the Internal Revenue Code political subdivisions have been given the right to borrow money at tax exempt rates that basically means when you issue debt and you issue it to a bondholder who holds it and then receives interest. The interest that they earn on that debt is not taxable. So that's for its tax exempt debt. That's a benefit that makes you more attractive in the market. There's only limited people that can do that. So the federal government says we have a lot of rules and regulations by which you can issue debt. And therefore, it's typically a note with a private placement with a bank or a bond issue with which you go out to the public markets and issue bonds that will eventually be held by bondholders. Many of you have them in your finance uh, portfolio or whatever. Uh, and then they are the holders of your debt. Um, I don't want to get into real details because we're keeping this high level. But one thing I would suggest to you is before you go down this road, you need to engage two people or think about engaging two people. Uh, one is bond counsel. The other one is a financial advisor. Um, I'm happy to say that Stockton Leader's been issuing bond council opinions since 1945, and we have the only um, nationally recognized bond council in your county. Uh, and if you go out to the bond markets, underwriters will require you to have nationally recognized bond council to participate and issue an opinion at the end of the day that says this transaction complies with all the rules and regulations of the Internal Revenue Code. And therefore, that's important to have those people engaged right from the beginning to make sure that you don't trip over any of the rules of either Laguna or the Internal Revenue Code. That was.